Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Owen O'Sullivan and today it's the TPOE Books of the Year 2018 podcast special. We began Lismas 2018 last week on the show when myself and Zara Hederman talked about our favourite music of the year. And this week I'm joined by novelist Ruth Gilligan to talk about our favourite books of the year. Ruth wrote a really great book, Nine Folds Make a Paper Swan, a couple of years ago. And if you listen closely, you might hear news of her next book. She was born in Dublin. She lives in London and she teaches creative writing at the University of Birmingham. We each made a top 10 list for the show and we spent about an hour or so going through it and discussing our respective picks. We recorded the podcast a couple of days ago and I've already bought a book that Ruth recommended. So I suggest maybe keeping a pen and paper handy nearby to make your own list of what we're talking about. There is a lot of good choices coming up, even if I do say so myself. You can follow Ruth at Ruth Gilligan on Twitter. You can check back next week for the TPOE Christmas party as Lismas 2018 rolls in. But first, here's myself and Ruth talking about our books of the year. So how was the year in reading for you? I think I had a good year in reading because I am this way inclined. I like to keep a, a list or a tally of how many books I've read as the year goes on, mainly because I'm a bit obsessed with lists and I'm a bit obsessed with books. And my kind of most striking thing from this year was how many books I had read. I think I've read more books this year than ever. Um, which I couldn't decide whether that meant that I wasn't doing other slightly more productive things. Or I then thought about it a little bit and I think, um, well, two things. I think one, I was writing a book this year, so I think I find myself reading a lot whilst I'm writing. Um, And two, there were a lot of really, really good, really short books this year, um, which was a delightful discovery. So books that you were able to read, you know, in a day or over a weekend or whatever. So I think they kind of ramped my tally up a little bit um and they kind of yeah I don't know there's something kind of delicious about a short novel that I um had kind of forgotten and this year as I said some of my favorite books this year were all literally about 120 pages uh which was a delight that's like the equivalent of my favorite type of film a 90 minute long film why do they need to be any longer no solid really solid although you know Titanic back in the day can't go wrong but um but no there is something about that that brevity I mean it raises all sorts of interesting questions about what is a novel what is a novella also like when you're buying these books in the shops and they still cost you know 13 English pounds in my case over here um and you're only getting 100 pages you're like hmm (laughs) this is not necessarily value for money but yeah, no, they really, I, I kind of, as I said, a lot of my favourite books this year were, were we, um, and, and they were great. Can you, can you put a number on how many you read, put everybody else to shame? Oh no, because then actually I won't have put you to shame because you'll be like, oh, I read way more. I think I'm like approaching like 75. Oh, okay. Oh, you're like, oh, that's weak, is it? <laughs> no, I, I was hitting that the past couple of years. Um, you know, I, I, about four years ago, I was like, right, I'll see if I can hit 100 books in a year. And 75 was kind of the max yeah. that I could do. But this is like the like the worst year I've had since then. I'm, I'm at about 50, I think. Did you Did you take on too many tomes? I took on a couple of big ones. I got really bogged down in the summer or in, yeah, it took me about three months to kind of wade through uh, Karlov Nausgaard's last book, The End, which is over a thousand pages long and contains 400 pages on Hitler and the Nazis. So that I really got bogged down on that. And then I just had a couple of other really long books that uh, kind of 
weighed against it. It was just kind of like, I need to get to the end so I can get back to the other stuff. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, I think Nice Guard, you should get like a whole pass for Nice Guard because it's so whopper. Um, so yeah, that's going to really, that's a bit of a lodestone. That's going to drag your tally right down. And do you think it was a good year for Irish writing? Because I kind of think that this was the first year in a while that um, there wasn't really a whole load of new writers that you could kind of um, uh, like wave around the place and like, look at how great Irish writing is this year. There was a lot of really good stuff. Uh, Wendy Erskine's book of short stories uh, got a lot of love and Dan- and uh, Danny Denton's book as well that I'm sure that we're going to be talking about shortly as well. But apart from that, I don't think that it, I think that this was the first year in a while that it was like, I don't know, it kind of fell back a little bit Irish writing. Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit ahead of our conversation. And I think it's it's interesting the way you put it as well. Like, does a good year for Irish writing equate to a good year for there being lots of new names on the Irish writing scene? And I'm like a, a bit hesitant to like equate those two things because I think, I don't know, as someone who's kind of in the industry, like there is this obsession with always finding the new, the the debut, the, the, the voice you've never heard of before. And obviously that's a really exciting part of it. Um, but I also think, you know, we shouldn't, you know, get too greedy because we already have some amazing writers. And I think, you know, you might say, OK, it wasn't a great year for Irish writing, but then like an Irish woman won the booker and, you know, Sally Rooney's book took over the world and is like Waterstone's book of the year and Hodges' book, figures book of the year. And, um, you know, so there's kind of two examples of two um, Irish writers who, who aren't debuts. They're not new voices. I mean, especially Anna Burns has, has been around for a while, but we feel like she's finally getting the kind of recognition and praise that she deserves. So I think in that sense, like I feel like everywhere I turn, it's interesting, like being over, like I live in London and it's interesting being over here and seeing that, like, um, as I said, between Sally's book and Anna's book, you know, I do feel like everywhere I turn at the moment, I see Irish writing and that's great. And um, that said, I was kind of, refreshing my memory and I went back to for example like the goldsmiths prize shortlist or the women's prize shortlist um, and there were no Irish writers on either of those which I suppose is quite unusual because I think in the past obviously we've had two Irish winners of the goldsmiths between Ken Barry and Ian McBride um, and Sarah Brown was on the shortlist last year and, and we've had Irish winners of the women's prize between Lisa McInerney and, uh, and, and, and Anne Enright was up there as well one year so yeah so I, I do think in that sense there was um, maybe we weren't we weren't everywhere but I, I, I still think I would be like a bit reluctant to say it was like a bad year for Irish writing because because um, I also try to read like a healthy balance of Irish books and kind of non-Irish books and yet when we were you know planning to have this conversation and I was going through my my list of 75 which I'm now you know, not as impressed with as I was um, you know my, my, my top three books of the year basically are by Irish writers so I think that for me says that I personally had a great year with Irish writing because the three books that are kind of my top three happen to be Irish so that's that's great. Huh, yeah, I think I think that it was because some of the more disappointing books that I've read this year have been Irish that maybe that's kind of stayed with me. I was kind of like disappointed by like three or four books that I thought that I'd really, really enjoy. And um, but anyway, we might get on to that later. But let's talk about the books that we did really enjoy. What's what's your number one book of the year for 2018? My number one d- drum roll, please. My number one book of the year um, is as you mentioned a few moments ago, Danny Denton's The Early King and the Kid in Yellow. 
Um, I read it back in January when it came out and I remember, well, I remember it's a bit like, do you remember stuff better because you have a photograph of it? I remember tweeting um, when I finished the book that, you know, I already feel like I read my best book of 2019 or 2018. So maybe I'm just kind of stubbornly sticking to that to prove um, that I was right all those months ago. Uh, but I really did just think it was exceptional um, and it, it kind of had everything I love in a book and it reminded me of authors I love, you know, between a bit of Kevin Barry and even, dare I say, a bit of Joyce or whatever. But then it also was doing something completely fresh and new. And I just I, I couldn't believe it was a debut book because I just think it's so accomplished and so audacious in its kind of scope and its form. And I, and I just loved it. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I read that back in January, um, but it, it's kind of stayed with me ever since. Yeah, that's on my top 10 list as well. He kind of seems like the the offspring of like Kevin Barry and Lisa McInerney and those type of writers. And it can be a difficult book to get into. I keep saying whenever I talk about it to people, I'm like, you know, you've got to stick with it for longer than 50 pages. Usually 50 pages is when you know if you like or dislike a book. And at that stage, I was kind of like, I still don't know what I, you know, 100% about this book. And then by 100 pages, you're starting to feel the flow of it. And then it just kind of continues on like that. It's really kind of cinematic type of uh sci-fi book surely they have to make a film out of it like i just i insist it's set it's set in ireland in like the lashing rain and it was it's really really good and came out in january and it stuck with us for like pretty much 12 months already so it must be good exactly Uh, my favorite book of the year is uh, Sally Rooney, Normal People. I don't think that that will come as much of a surprise to many people because I absolutely love Sally Rooney. Conversations with Friends was one of my favorite books from last year, wasn't it? Yeah, 2017. And she just kind of d- almost doubled down on it, probably to a lot of people's annoyance because Normal People doesn't tackle anything too uh, different to what's brought up in conversations with friends. It's about these two young lovers and their on-off relationship as they move from uh, the west of Ireland to go to college in Dublin. Um, Like, why do you think it is that this book is, like, just being recommended so much and everybody is just full of acclaim for it? Because ultimately, I think it's like, could anyone have written this book? You know, is is it doing anything that dramatic? I think it's just the way that it's so intimate and so knowing and uh, it's just, you can really relate to it. I think that that's what I get, that maybe a lot of writers couldn't do that. They really get into the intimate side of things. Yeah, and kind of the ugly side of things. And like so much of the book, you find yourself cringing because it kind of manages to articulate Marianne and Connell's inner thoughts and they're kind of, oh, they're kind of, I don't know, dirty secrets or less likable tendencies. And you kind of see them articulated on a page and you're like, oh my goodness, that's like, I think that, but I just never admit to it ever. Um, So I think there is this weird uncanny sense of seeing your own kind of not necessarily most, uh, most likable bits uh, captured on the page. I think also, you know, for me, I thought as a, as a novel, it just struck like a perfect balance between being I can't think of a more kind of eloquent way of putting it except being like a book for the head and the heart like I thought conversations with friends was so amazing and and really kind of impressive and it really kind of intellectually stimulating and you know all the 
characters are very clever and have these really you know really great conversations that you kind of that make you think about stuff and and you know it is kind of um intellectually impressive um but there's like a coolness to that book which is kind of part of it because the characters are all a bit cool and are putting on putting up a bit of a front and it's all about I guess the 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 barriers that we we put up between each other but then I don't know I think normal people has that same as I said like um just intellectual I don't know genius or insight um but also it's just a big love story and you know you're just you're just absolutely devouring each chapter because you're like are they going to get together are they going to get together are they going to get together um so I think it's like a really delicious combination of um something that makes you think and something that just kind of makes your heart melt a little bit um which is kind of a killer combo I guess um I love reading interviews with Sally as well just because like as is as is always said in all of her interviews you know she was the European debater of the year a couple of years ago when she was at Trinity so and she's always like really combative in her interviews as well you know I can just imagine her kind of on the edge of her seat ready for all of the questions and it does seem like she's people are trying to call her the voice of a generation like she's called a salinger for the snapchat generation as well she told esquire during the week uh, i'm not trying to be a voice for even a small fraction of a generation not even young women of my generation or irish women of my generation really it's just me like i never read this as kind of voice of a generation stuff i just feel like she just understands young people or people in their 20s right now and maybe the people who are kind of uh you know, installed as critics or something in newspapers and stuff, maybe are kind of like, oh, she she just gets it more than us. <laughs> yeah, I think so. There definitely is like a generational thing, but I find that like, yeah, especially the 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 voice of the Snapchat generation just like a bit cringe. I mean, I've never used Snapchat in my life. Um, and I don't know if Sally Rooney has or not, but certainly her characters don't go around using snapchat like yeah they email a bit and they text a bit um but you know this idea i don't know i feel like banners like that make it sound like it's this kind of social media saturated instagram you know influencer style book which it's just so not at all um and i think you know the 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 really positive reviews of normal people pointed out that it is kind of a timeless story like there's a real timelessness to it because it is just about two people and their circumstances and you know class and you know parental tensions and kind of coming of age and all these themes that are kind of as old as the hills so the idea of kind of branding her with this kind of snapchat thing I don't know I I'm kind of certainly very resistant to it on her behalf um so uh and I think it misrepresents um what the books are about and also kind of makes them sound like they're very much like of a moment and therefore in 10 years time won't be as relevant which is completely nuts because they are I think going to last and last. Yeah and and another thing about this book is it came in just writing an absolute wave of hype. It was nominated for the Booker Prize long list like two or three months before it actually arrived in shops and it's so rare that stuff comes so hyped but like exceeds that as well particularly like for me anyway uh, but I thought I thought that this did it more I think it's a perfect book. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's, um, yeah, again, you know, when you pay attention to the industry, you become slightly jaded with the amount of books that in advance are to- you're told are going to change your life and be the best thing since sliced bread, or at least the best thing since Lady Smith. But then they arrive and 
they're not. And that's fine because, you know, it's an industry and there's, you know, there's marketing and there's publicity and that's all part of it. But um, but after a while, it's a little bit boy who cried wolf because you kind of um, you kind of think, oh, well, I've heard it all before. But you're right with hers. It came along and it was like, no, it is absolutely just as good as they said it would be, if not better. So, yeah, it's always really pleasant surprise. And that is the case. Let's continue working down our, our list of our 10 uh, favorite books. Number two on your list is your nonfiction book of the year, I presume. Yes. And I should say, I mean, not that it had loads of competition because I just shamefully, for whatever reason, just don't read a lot of nonfiction. Um, but I, which is kind of shameful. I, every year it's one of my resolutions that I should read more. But I do think like as a as a novelist, you kind of, I don't know, every time you read another novel, it can be for pleasure, but also you can kind of convince yourself you're doing something vaguely useful because you're kind of looking at another novel and maybe learning from it or stealing from it or whatever. Whereas nonfiction, you can't necessarily have the same justification. But I read Notes to Self by Emily Pine, um, who's another debut writer. Um, and I, I read it mainly because it was published by Tram Press um, and Tram Press could publish, you know, um, a limerick written on the back of a menu um, and I would read it. So um, I had to, you know, I, I trust them implicitly. Everything they've published has just been such a gem. Um, so they served up essays and I said, OK, I will read the essays. And I found them phenomenal. I really did. I just thought Emily writes so clearly and so honestly and so beautifully um, and I think also I must kind of the caveat I should say or the you know I should say that I'm kind of biased because you know the essays are about being a young female academic who's you know thinking about having babies who's constantly underestimated in the workplace because she looks young who's navigating kind of difficult parental relationships um and all those things are basically me so there was this really like genuinely uncanny sense that like oh my god this woman is writing about me and my life and that's and again back to what I was saying about Sally Rooney I guess it was this her ability to kind of capture on the page all these thoughts and questions and doubts and ugly ugly things um that I haven't even been able to articulate in my own head. And the fact that she was able to, to so eloquently spell them out on the page, it just honestly it blew me away. Yeah, this is um, probably my favorite nonfiction book of the year as well. And I think everybody is going to have a different favorite essay. What's, what's your favorite one in the book? Would, would it be the last one, which maybe you can relate to like the strongest? It's about like being a young female academic. I was it, honestly, I, I think I found the baby years just also intense. The um, I don't know. I we're not having children yet, but we probably will start trying soon. And even just you know the whole landscape of you know I'm at that age where my friends are starting to have babies or starting to talk about it, and um, so this really honest, unflinching account of actually what you know that that slightly awful word trying even means and the different phases and how it affects your relationship, your professional life, your emotional sense of self was just kind of terrifying. But also I was just so grateful because these are the kind of the side of that whole business that just no one talks about. So, so that, I, that was actually my favorite, but yes, the last one was also, also excellent. I think it's Anne Enright who's on the uh, cover of the book or on the back of the book saying like, uh, you know, don't read this on public transport because you will start crying. And I think a lot of people might have taken that as a challenge. And I don't think anyone has passed because it's it's impossible to get through these essays without like something hitting you right in the gut. I mean, even that first essay, it's like a really long, uh, it's easily the longest in the book about um, just her father living in Greece and his 
problems with alcoholism and uh, it's just really tough to read and that's one of the things that I think Emily Pine has really connected with people because she's not afraid to show like the really dark parts of life that people want to kind of brush under the carpet yeah no I think that's totally true and it's funny I guess I haven't really thought about them side by side but talking about them in such quick succession again I think that's something that Sally Rooney is doing as well so again these kind of the unspeakable or the things that usually are taboo to talk about and whether in fiction or non-fiction um I think in both cases they've they've just nailed it, um, and it's you know it's great news now that that Emily's book has been has been bought by an, a British publisher, um, so the essays are coming out over here with I think it's Hamish Hamilton, um, so I'm just delighted at the prospect of kind of being on the tube and seeing other people crying while <laughs> else reading her essays because I just think she you know her her work is so great and in no way kind of Ireland specific, so it'd be lovely to see her kind of get a wider readership. Um, so that other people can appreciate her. Yeah, and and mentioning what I did earlier, like has it been a good year for Irish writing? I think essays are one of the things that have really excelled in Irish writing so much so that the uh, editor of the Dublin Review had a feature in the Irish Times last weekend as as we're recording it. I think it's the first weekend of uh, December. If you want to check it out, just talking about uh, essays and the rise of essays in Ireland, and that's something that's going to continue into twenty nineteen as well. Sinead Gleeson and Kevin Brannock are two names that jump out as people who have a book of essays coming out. So Ireland is like really doing well at that at the moment. And you can see that as well with how good the Dublin Review is at the moment. Stinging Fly as well as kind of pivoting a little bit more towards essays too. So Irish people are, they're ready to talk. <laughs> <laughs> that should come as no surprise to us, of course. But um, no, I'm absolutely buzzing for, um, for Sinead's collection, especially, I think, you know, not only because she has so long been kind of a champion of, of Irish writing and kind of working behind the scenes to, to, to give other people a leg up and between her interviews and her anthologies and her reviews and all of that. So I think it's, it's, it's wonderful that, that, you know, her writing is, is going to be, um, you know, in the spotlight and also, you know, any work of hers that we have seen, you know, she had that wonderful essay um, in Granta a while ago um, about her kind of, health struggles as a youth and on into the present day um I think it's called blue hills chalk bones it's incredible it's really wonderful so if that's like a taster of what the whole of her collection constellations is going to be like um yeah happy days i may read another book of non-fiction it turns out <laughs> <laughs> i i actually did read a lot of uh, non-fiction i kind of didn't realize until i was just looking through my list of top 10 there i like really got into it uh this year i read um Leslie Jameson, I have her at number four in my top 10 list, if you're keeping track. Before we get back to my number two uh, in a bit, uh, Leslie Jameson's The Recovering, which is about uh, her diving into her alcoholism and trying to make sense of it. Uh, she is someone who Sinead Gleeson actually recommended to me. Uh, she released a book called The Empathy Exams a couple of years ago, and it's still probably my favorite book of nonfiction. It's so great. And oh, wow. I must write that down. Yeah, The Empathy Exams, it's absolutely brilliant. And The Recovering is an absolutely huge book. It must be like three times the size of The Empathy Exams. And yeah, it just charts the story of addiction. Um, and she does it so well. It's really, really long. And you can kind of tell that 
as she's going through it, you know, she's realizing that she's drinking too much and everything. And then she goes to AA and she talks about kind of the heroes of AA through the decades and how uh, that's kind of become the thing that you do to tackle addiction. And then you kind of know as she's kind of getting better that there's a relapse coming because the book is is so big, it's almost inevitable. <laughs> Just one of the notes I made uh, was that it'll make you assess the next beer that you have. But then also I was thinking about it. Um, I started reading the book in a pub. <laughs> Just coincidentally, and then a beer mat was my bookmark throughout the reading of the book, oh, wow. and it just kind of felt apt, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe one for dry January then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's it. I also had in my top five Problems by Jay Charma, another Tramp Press book, which is also about addiction. It's about, uh, the, it's actually a book that was published in America a couple of years ago, and Tramp Press obviously got a copy of it, loved it so much that they published it in the UK and Ireland. It's about a girl called Maya who um, uses heroin a lot. She's in university. She's, uh, I think she's doing a thesis and um, she's doing a load of junk as well, a load of heroin. And it's really funny, which is probably a surprising thing. Um, One of the quotes that I pulled out was that uh, at some point you realize you aren't waiting anymore for your life to start. Your life's happening right now and it's pretty dull. And that's kind of how it how it kind of continues. She has an affair with someone. She's stuck in a marriage that she kind of needs to get out of. And uh, yeah, it's really, really good. It's also really tender because you worry about uh, the character as well. So I, I really, really loved it. And as you said, Tram Press, I'll read anything that they do, that they put out. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's worth saying about this book as well. I think it kind of does a wonderful job of you know, she's, she's not totally likable. And she's, uh, she's also, you know, she's a, she's a difficult woman to use that phrase. So I think, you know, um, as the industry starts to talk more about having kind of strong female protagonists or unlikable or difficult or just complex female protagonists, um, I think this is kind of, you know, very much in the canon of, of that. And I think, I think that's important in and of itself. Number four on your list is a book that I really, really wanted to read. I heard them talking about it on the New York uh, Review of Books podcast last week. It sounds like a really interesting one. Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday was great. So again, this was another um, quite short book published by, I believe, by Granta. I think actually I kind of noticed a pattern as I wrote down all my favorite books and all my favorite short books that Granta seemed to have a thing um, about short books, which is which is interesting. Um, but yes, Asymmetry is split into three parts. Um, and the first one is about a young author having, or a young aspiring author having a love affair with an older very established author um, and the kind of politics behind that. Um, and it is, it's it's kind of, it's reminiscent almost of, of normal people in that kind of, it shows the, the kind of intimacies of a love affair in all its kind of in good and bad and all the kind of cringe things that we do and say to one another. It actually reminds me a bit of First Love by Gwendolyn Riley, which is another short book by Granta. There's a pattern here. And just that kind of awkward love affair. And then the book jumps forward somewhere totally different um, to the other side of the world, to a war-torn country, um, and someone um, kind of escaping that. And then the last 
part of the book is um, a single episode of Desert Island Discs, the BBC radio show. Um, and it's the, the aforementioned established author doing his Desert Island Discs, having just won the Nobel Prize. So the book is very much these three distinct sections. And you're thinking to yourself, how on earth do these three um, fit together? Um, and it's not even super obvious. Like it's quite subtle to the point that like I spoke to my mother after I had made her read it and she was like, yeah, no, I missed it. What? Um, so I think uh, there, you know, it's so subtle that you have to pay real attention. Um, but I do think just, I don't know, I'm a sucker for kind of interesting forms and people playing around with how a novel is put together um, and I just think that this uh, is doing something really interesting and something kind of new um, and as I said the, the, the bits slot together but only just um, and I kind of love that so yeah it's really great. They were talking on the um, New York Books Review podcast about who uh, the person is that she has an affair with in uh, the first part of Asymmetry. Is it obvious who, who it's supposed to be? Well I mean I knew or as in I feel like there was a lot of talk even ahead of the book coming out about who it was. I think it's it's kind of no spoiler to say that Lisa Halliday herself had a love affair with Philip Roth. Um, and I think he's kind of, I don't know, I've never met Philip Roth, but I think the character in the book is this kind of big middle-aged to slightly older authoritarian Jewish man. So I don't know, maybe it's, it is kind of obvious. And then obviously Roth passed away this year so it was interesting then the the kind of book being being talked about in that context but you know in a way it's kind of that shouldn't be important um because you know I think it you know it raises all sorts of interesting questions about people always saying that women can only ever write about their own personal lives and they all have to be biographical or autobiographical etc um but then again I do feel like it wasn't exactly kept a secret um when when the book came out that 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 Halliday had had this 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 affair herself so so yeah I don't know I I don't think it matters um it's like a, a bit of interesting colorful detail but I think you don't spend the whole book being like oh is that what Philip Roth was like in bed it's more like oh look at these two people with their slightly messed up um but totally compelling love affair. Do you think it would have been published if he was still alive? I think he was still alive when it first came out. I think he died um, since the book um, was first published to now. So um, kind of freaky timing almost. I, I really want to read that. That's on my, that's on my to be read book, uh, pile. Number five in my top ten list is uh, one of two music books. It's Dan Han Dan Hancock's Inner City Pressure, the story of grime. Grime music is kind of like the ugly cousin of uh, American hip hop. People didn't like it for well, people kind of loved it initially. It kind of grew out of garage music, and then Dizzy Rascal won the um, Mercury Prize for Boy in the Corner in two thousand and three, I think. So it kind of uh, got a lot of acclaim quickly, and then it kind of died down or it seemed to die down in mainstream circles until next year, Stormzy is headlining uh, Glastonbury. I know, I thought that's so cool. So it's kind of apt that there is this book and it chronicles the rise of grime and it also chronicles the changing London in 2000 because grime is something that began in around 98, 99 and continued through pirate radio stations around London in uh, the early noughties and... Wiley is kind of the star of the book he's called the godfather of grime and he's kind of continued you know he's helped so many people along the way he's like one of the heroes of the book uh 
and the I mean the Met Police and they're kind of cracking down on uh, black people and black people in clubs. It's really hard to like fathom how all of this was allowed under like Tony Blair and Labour and then like it seemed like David Cameron and the Tories might be uh, okay with you know they might actually be better but uh, it's just as bad so this the story of grime is the story of a genre that has survived a lot of hardships along the way and it's on its uh, well it's on its headliner tour now I guess with Stormzy so I think that the book is brilliant it's rare it's kind of like like hip-hop you can place to 1973 and like a party in New York Grime is something that you can place to less than 20 years ago. And it's really, really interesting, I think, that a genre of music is placed so specifically and the story is grown from that. And Dan Hancock's was kind of there early early on and he just seems like an absolutely brilliant uh, chronicler of these things. You have The Cow Book at number five. The Cow Book is a book that I was kind of like looking at interest at when everybody was recommending it. And uh, I was kind of seeing it as not a joke, but kind of like... You know, c- could you take it seriously as a book? I mean, what what's it about? Oh, completely. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, like, um, again, this comes with another caveat, which is um, I'm just finishing a novel called The Butchers, uh, which is set on a cattle farm <laughs> in uh, County Cavan and County Monaghan. So I've had a bit of an inordinate uh, interest in cows and cattle farming for the last years which is I realized an extremely unlikely thing for me to have an obsession with but there you go um so it was one of those things when this book came out and it's it's by John Connell who's written fiction previously so this is his first piece of non-fiction and it's kind of a memoir and it's um it's partially about you know day-to-day life on a cattle farm in contemporary Ireland and, and what that actually entails um, so that's kind of on one strand of the, the, the book. And then the other strand is his own kind of struggles with mental health um, and how moving back to Ireland, he had been in Australia, um, moving back to Ireland and returning to his father's farm became this kind of restorative act um, and that the the routines of, of the farm um, helped him to build back up a, a sense of self and, and rebuild his relationship with his family as well. Um, so in, in that way, it kind of fits into the genre of like, you know, H is for Hawk or The Outrun by Amy Liptrot, this kind of um, nature writing as a way of dealing with, with grief or mental health or whatever. So it, it, it fits kind of into that genre. Um, but I just, I just find it fascinating. I, you know, as I said, I, I do have a, um, a kind of a, a direct interest in this at the moment, uh, but just it, he writes so beautifully and the way he describes um his life on the farm and his just relationship with the with all the animals and then his relationship with his parents um and then you're yeah, writing so so honestly about mental health and I think you know he's got a lot of publicity around the book not only because it's wonderful but also because I think a lot of kind of the farming people of Ireland are delighted that someone is finally talking about about the fact that mental health is a real issue and um, you know it's such, such an isolated life in some in some ways and you have these men who do spend all day on their own in a great field um and it's no wonder that they may struggle with their with their mental health so um so yeah it's a very kind of tender quiet book um but i loved it i thought it was beautiful 
Uh, I I loved um, the book that I'm going to talk about next, which is called Everything I Know About Love by Dolly Alderton. Uh, it's another book of um, short sto- or nonfiction that you can file alongside Emily Pine's Notes to Self. It's also a book that I give to all of my friends because uh, though it's called Everything I Know About Love, it's kind of more about friendships and ensuring and helping friendships to persevere uh, because ultimately they're kind of the most important thing. Dolly Alderton was the sex columnist at the Sunday Times and she's actually gone back there since the book was published and she's just a regular columnist now I guess writing about uh, everything anything and everything and she also has a really good uh, podcast called The High Low as well which uh, I've really enjoyed this year so she's been one of my um, favorite people to listen to and read this year, I think it's for fans of Catelyn Moran and people like that. I think uh, if, if you go in wanting something out of kind of a book of essays, you're going to find a lot of things to love about everything I know about love. I've had this in my to read file for, for ages because so many of my friends um, recommended it and loved it. Um, and I do think, you know, female friendship is a beautiful thing and should be talked about and written about more. So, yes, it's on my pile. So you maybe you have given me the final push to finally take the plunge. <laughs> and and like uh, Emily Pine's book, there's one sec- there's one particular section that jumps out as like, don't read it on public transport because you will cry. So just just be wary of that. I, I haven't heard of the next book on on your list. Follow me to ground. Yes, yes. I'm delighted then to kind of bring your attention to it. So Follow Me to Ground is a debut book by a woman called Sue Rainsford. And it was published by Little Island. Um, so which is probably why it um, hasn't got as much um, noise because, oh, sorry, New Island. Sorry, not Little Island. New Island Press. Sorry, terrible. Um, I just picked up my copy and looked at the swine. Um, so, you know, they're like a, another small Irish press, much like Tramp, um, who also bring out incredible, incredible new voices. Again, it's a small book. You'll read it in like a day. And it's, you know, it's almost, dare I say, like a tiny bit sci-fi or maybe just a bit magical realism or something there's something freaky going on basically um but it's about a woman and her father and they live on the edges of town and um people come to them to get cured or to get healed um and you kind of see what it is exactly that's going on there so i don't want to say more because i don't want to give too much away but it's just like it's just really creepy and it is one of those books i didn't know what to expect and the kind of the cover and the blurb doesn't really give anything away so i think it's sometimes nice going into a book with absolutely no expectations i read it and i just it's just captivating i mean her prose is lovely but the the kind of the whole just watching that mystery unspool and again it's as I said it's only about 120 pages so it's really kind of tightly wound every line is kind of really intense and just kind of drip feeds you a little bit more information of what the hell is going on um so yeah it's just kind of one of those eerie little books um a bit like um my next one, uh, which I may as well mention now, uh, Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. Um, they both are actually quite similar books. Actually, very similar, the more I think about it, because they're also, they're both about kind of father-daughter relationships and, and something freaky and eerie going on. And they're, again, they're both really short, but just kind of these slow unraveling of a, a really tense, eerie situation. As I said, I read both of them in probably like a day, but I'm still thinking about them months, months later. So it's, it's a real testament to the fact that a, a very short novel can still have kind of a huge impact. Yeah, I saw Sinead Gleeson was talking about Ghost Wall a lot this year as well. Uh, I think it's one that I have to uh, have to try and get to over Christmas. 
Yeah, I think um, it's funny. Sarah Moss is, you know, it was really interesting watching all the reviews of Ghost Wall and saying that, like, Sarah Moss is the is the best British writer you've never heard of. You know, she's had about five or six novels now, I think, but actually it was only her last book, The Tidal Zone, um, which someone recommended to me and I read and I inhaled it. And I was very much like, how did I not know who this woman was? How have I not been aware of her until now um so because i had read that i was really really eager um when when ghost wall came out um but i think it is interesting seeing a lot of people read the book and and it's 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 also quite a timely book because it, yes it's about kind of father daughter relationships but it's all about um they're on a bronze age reenactment week out in rural Britain and it's all kind of it's, it's raising questions about kind of history and the past and heritage and trying to preserve an old way of life in the the rural British countryside so in that way it, it is a book that that's kind of a you know it's got kind of Brexit undertones without in any way kind of shoving them down your throat but this idea that there was kind of a perfect Albion back in the day which we need to return to and get rid of all this kind of globalization and immigrants and blah 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 this book kind of speaks to all of that without being kind of didactic or specific in any way um so yeah so I think it's it's a very timely book um but as I said more than anything it's just a super atmospheric intense book um and I just I just loved it we're almost finished our, our top 10. Number seven on my list was uh, Danny Denton's book, which we talked about earlier. Lily Allen is the second music book that I have on my list. Uh, Lily Allen is someone that I've liked uh, right from the off with her uh, first singles in like 2005 or something like that. And she's kind of been through a lot since then. And this is her first autobiography and she kind of talks about everything. She talks about drug use and drinking and touring and being a mother on the road and like sexual abuse in the music industry. Probably the most harrowing thing of all is uh, her stalker Hell which she went through kind of recently enough and kind of trying to convince the police of what was actually happening. She, she's probably described often as like a difficult pop star, um, but uh, she's certainly a really, really engaging writer. And it's, it's sometimes it's like really hard to read. And sometimes, uh, you know, you, you want to just kind of like give her a hug and tell her she'll be OK. And other times, you know, you just want to tell Lily to just cop on you know just you know get get on with things um so it's a it's a really really good book I, di- I did a list of my 10 music books of the year for the examiner uh during the week if anybody wants to uh check out some more music books you have a couple of books at eight and nine that i also wish i had read this year rachel kushner's the mars room is number eight for you i've prepared for uh the mars room by reading rachel kushner's previous two books uh, the Flamethrowers and Telex from Cuba, which I, I, I really, really enjoyed both. The Flamethrowers is kind of called like uh, one of those great American novels. And I think is the, Mar- is the Mars Room something similar? Yeah, it is similar. I mean, I, I too, I've read um, The Flamethrowers and, and loved it. Uh, the, the Mars Room in a way is a slightly different proposition. I, I found The Flamethrowers um, is very kind of it's quite a long book. It's quite intense. There's loads going on. There's loads of different settings. There's kind of the art world, the motorcycling world. There's, you know, sex in 70s New York. Um, the Mars Room is kind of a much more stripped back book. Um, I mean, it's still kind of very American in its focus, but it's it's set on a women's penitentiary in California. And it's basically just giving you an insight, I suppose, into the 
very, very grim reality that is mass incarceration in the US. Um, I think, you know, it's funny, I was reading this book whilst listening to the latest series of Serial, the podcast. Um, so I felt like I spent all my life inside US prisons and jails, which was, yeah, it was a pretty grim time. Um, but no, the Mars Room, it, it follows one particular woman um, and her her crime and her, you know, admission into this, um, into this prison and, and the kind of network of, of friends and support and also suffering that she encounters there. Um, but I just, you know, I think the, the reason I loved this book, um, not only because as I said, it gives you an insight into this, this world and how just kind of depressingly awful it is, but I think it's, it's so effortless. I've never read a book that is just like, I mean, Rachel Kushner is a pretty cool chick. I've seen her talk a few times and she is, uh, she has this amazing kind of Californian accent and she just, she's so bright and so smart, but has this very kind of laissez-faire nonchalant air about her. And that comes across in the Mars room. It's so easy to read. It's just really kind of conversational, quite dry, quite witty. Um, And yeah, as I said, she is, tackling these huge issues of incarceration, race, sexual violence, gender fluidity, like all of that is there. And yeah, you just kind of, you're just reading it in this totally relaxed, effortless way. And I just, I just loved it. It's brilliant. She certainly should be discussed as one of the great American novelists uh, around at the moment. I love her ambition as well. She seems like someone who's really, really ambitious and wants to try something new and challenging with every book. Yeah, absolutely. And I also like I've heard her talk a few times and she always gets asked about the research that she does for her books. And particularly this one, you know, they're saying, oh, did you do research? Did you go to a women's jail and blah, blah, blah. And her response is always like, I really don't like to think of it as research. I, I live my life a certain way. And then I write about it and I just, and that kind of embodies this like super cool, but super curious way that she has about her. So she, you know, she, she decided one day apropos of nothing really that she, you know, she, I think she was driving past a, a huge state penitentiary and realized how little she knew about the system and the realities of it. So she just started dropping in and, and volunteering and helping out and, and, and getting to know the women and their world and, and, and still does even after the book has been written and published. She's like, they're my friends now. They're like, I go, I hang out, I help. Um, and so, yeah, so she does just have this sense that she, um, she puts herself in these kind of fascinating situations and just kind of soaks them up um, but not because she's out to research a book but just because I think that really is how she lives her life. At number nine on your list is another book that I want to read uh, Everything Under by Daisy Johnson and like Rachel Kushner I prepared for this by reading uh, her first book Fen which was released a couple of years ago I read that earlier in the year in preparation for this that's kind of a weird book that I think I saw Kevin Barry blurbed it on the front and I was like well if Kevin Barry is recommending yeah, this I Barry. <laughs> it's, uh, it is a weird book is Everything Under a similarly odd undertaking? I would say it is also odd in a in a good way but not as odd um so i think if you found the concept of girls turning into eels um in fen too much um you will be pleasantly surprised in everything under um there is still a sense you know it's it's a it's a retelling of the oedipus myth um so you've kind of got that going on in the background and then you've got some kind of contemporary folklore braided through the book as well it's all set 
on, uh, on the canals outside of Oxford. So you've got this kind of murky, wet, damp, slightly sinister atmosphere running through the whole thing. But it also is a book that's essentially about a, a mother and a daughter being reunited after, I think, about 20 years of separation. Um, and also the mother is suffering from Alzheimer's and is starting to lose her memory. So um, it's it's a very kind of tender book about mother-daughter relations, memory loss, end of life, guilt, regret. Um, but it does have this incredible atmosphere. And as I said, it is braided through with all these myths, recent and ancient. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's it's an incredible book. Um, she, you know, is a very young writer. You know, everyone was talking about she was the youngest person to be on the Booker shortlist. And if she had won, she would have been just younger than Eleanor Catton, who won it um, a few years ago. The, her mastery of, of language and again, of form. I, as I said, I'm a sucker for form. Um, and the, the book has three different strands that kind of intertwine over the course of the novel. And she's able to just keep all three going and, and, and weave them in and out so elegantly. So I found it like an insanely impressive book um and I just kind of it's one of those books you want to go back and study and and then take apart and be like how did she do that because it really is so impressive rounding out my top 10 is another book of essays it's called impossible owls by brian phillips that was released in america i read it on my kindle i'm not sure if it actually has been released in um physical form over in the uk and ireland but uh it should be i've been following brian's writing for ages and i think he's such a funny and witty and insightful writer he often writes about Roger Federer and uh sports as well and kind of how ridiculous some some aspects of sport are and how they can also be transcendent as well so the first essay in this uh, relatively short collection I think it's about 320 pages uh the first essay is very very long um he joins a husky drawn uh, race across Alaska. The essay is called Out in the Great Alone and it's about the Itidorod Trail Sled Dog Race. So uh, he, he says that this must this must be the least spectator friendly sporting event in the world because to follow the Itidorod requires not only a bush plane but a bush plane equipped with skis capable of landing on frozen rivers and lakes. There's death in this uh, story. There's also why people push themselves. Why do you do ridiculous things uh, for sport? Um, in another essay, it's called Sea of Crises. He travels to Japan to report on a sumo wrestler who might be promoted to the top rank where like few people ever make it. It's kind of like a hard sell for people who may not be familiar with the sport like me, but uh, he really sucks you in. And well over there, he becomes obsessed with this Japanese writer called Yukio Mishami, Mishimi who uh, committed suicide in 1970 by performing seppuku, uh, which is ritual disembowelment after a failed coup d'etat. But it turns out, well, maybe he isn't dead. So this really is a collection that kind of is uh, varied. It's eclectic. There's also an essay about the history of the royal family that sounds like it shouldn't work, but uh, it's absolutely great. It starts with a line about a detail on the Queen's bag. And you're like, what? What's going on here? But uh, it's it's brilliant. He also discusses aliens, Roswell, X Files, Area 51, and Route 66 in another essay called Lost Highway. So if you want something a little bit different, um, this book, Impossible Isles by Brian Phillips, is an absolutely brilliant collection of essays. And I think rounding out our top ten, both of our top ten, is uh, one of the most talked about books of the year. Who people might not have even been able to name the author at the start of the year. She's had an amazing second half of the year. Anna Burns and Milkman. Um, 
it gets talked about as a difficult book. I don't think it really is a difficult book. It may be like Danny Denton's. I guess it takes a while to kind of read yourself into it and understand it. I, I was trying to recommend this book to uh, someone in work during the week. Uh, I was just like, oh, you should buy Milkman as a Christmas present to, or for yourself or for someone else. And he was like, "What? what's it about? I was just like, oh, it's about a stalker. He's like, what? Why, why would you recommend that to me? <laughs> what does that say about me? So um, it's may, maybe it's a difficult enough sell, but once you get into it and find its rhythms, I think you'll be uh, richly rewarded. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think um, I read this book back in June, um, quite soon after it came out. And yeah, I think... I think it's like anything, or not like anything, but, you know, books that are doing something interesting with form or with voice, you know, like A Girl is a Half-Worn Thing, or even like, I don't know, Curious Incident. Like, you you spend the first page kind of wading a little bit, and then something kind of inside your brain just clicks, and you you, you get into um, the speech patterns and rhythms and ticks of the narrator, um, and, then, and then off you go. So I think, yeah, it requires... A little bit of work but I think depending on the kind of reader you are that is not necessarily a bad thing and actually it can often be a really pleasurable thing um so so yeah I think that whole conversation slightly got overblown but um but whatever the, you know people like to have a moan about something and you know panic about the state of the book industry or the man booker prize or whatever it is we're supposed to be panicking about next i think the only thing i will say that i find quite annoying um in in that whole conversation is like i started thinking back to the you know because a lot of people were like oh it's a terrible choice for the booker win because it'll make everyone think that the booker is all about difficult and hard and intellectual um novels and then like i was looking at back through the list of of who've won it in in past years and I think I might, might be one of the only people on this planet who who didn't adore Lincoln and the Bardo. Like I thought it was, I thought it was good. I didn't think it was outstanding. But again, that's pretty formally bonkers and requires quite a lot of work. I would argue more work than Milkman um, requires. Uh, the Sellout by Paul Beatty is again, you know, that kind of intense satire um for the whole book is 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 kind of hard work in, in its own way uh the marlon james a brief history of seven killings uh the richard flanagan you know the luminaries by elder catton like if you keep going back you get these books that are being very ambitious with form and none of them are easy in adverted commas read um reads so i think a i, I think Milkman, the idea that Milkman is kind of bucking the trend of recent um, man booker winners is ridiculous. Um, and B, you know, to, to kind of classify its, its difficulty or its ambition as a bad thing is insane because, you know, a lot of really great books require just you know, a bit of work and, and that's fine and that's great and it's, and it's worth it. I think that's the most important thing. It's not like it makes you labor and then it's not worth it. It's so worth it. Yeah, I think it's kind of like the special things that it does can kind of turn people off. But it's kind of like when you describe uh, Solar Bones by Mike McCormick as a single sentence book. It's like it's yeah, it's a single sentence book, but that isn't a you know it's not a difficult thing to get into like milkman is set in the troubles and it's narrated by this person called middle sister and there are actually no names used 
uh, in the book. The milkman is uh, who the stalker is, who starts stalking middle sister, a girl who's kind of got her head in her books and kind of keeps her head, literally keeps her head down as the troubles are kind of raging around her. And I actually found that the use of no names throughout the book actually helped it because you remember it a lot easier than having to remember, you know, like, wait, who's Jane again? Who's this character in the book? Who's that character in the book? I, I, I almost found it easier. I think yeah, more people you know, should I do stuff like this. That, yeah. Um, also, I think what what gets overlooked as well, I think, you know, there was a, a New York Times review of the book during the week because the book's just come out in the States and the New York Times reviewer absolutely slated it. And I think, um, you know, went on about how difficult it was and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, described her as being, I don't know, kind of willfully difficult or obtuse. I think that's what I resent the most, the idea that authors are just being, you know, formally complicated or experimental or unusual purely for the sake of it whereas actually that couldn't be further from the the truth but in the case of milkman the kind of the these kind of long um, meandering multi-clausal repetitive uh sentences you know they create this really kind of intense inescapable almost like claustrophobic atmosphere in the prose which then is completely mirrored by the intense uh claustrophobic atmosphere of this town this small town in northern ireland at that time because because of the troubles and, and because she's a woman um in in this world um it is you know and all the everyone's gossiping about everyone else so there's all these rules and reg- regulations about what streets you can walk down what bread you can buy what newspaper you can read um so it is this super claustrophobic atmosphere so for me the prose is like just doing a marvelous job of, of replicating that within the form of the book and and, you know, that to me is just sensational and that's what good writing is all about. So I think to say it's just trying to be difficult or Joycean or Bucketian or whatever just for the sake of it or just because she's trying to sound clever um, is so insulting, firstly, and also just completely missing the point. Yeah, and that and that kind of rounds out our, our top 10. I think that we can continue on. Like there, there are other books that I really enjoyed uh, this year. Just kind of briefly, I'm almost finished Caroline O'Donoghue's de- uh, debut novel, Promising Young Women, which is uh, really, really good. Uh, it's kind of like Louise O'Neill, that kind of uh, style. It's about a woman in a marketing company and it's you know it's been released a couple of a year after me too and you can kind of see that imprint throughout it i'm kind of reading it through my fingers as it kind of uh kind of gets worse and worse and worse i think by the time i finish that'll probably have crept up into my top 10 as well uh i mentioned earlier that i finished reading uh the end by nowscard the sixth and final book I was there from the start a couple of years ago and uh, somehow I've stuck with him. It's I, I think everybody should read his first book, see if it's for you, and then you'll probably want to continue on reading him. Uh, it's not easy to like him. He, he offers something. I'm still not 100% sure what he offers because the writing is so mundane and what happens is so mundane. Shopping with his kids. Uh, the writing process is probably the most interesting thing that he discusses. I think that that's book four where he discusses it the most. The end is probably the most disappointing um, book of the collection, but um, 
yeah, uh, I, I got there in the end. I also recently finished uh, William Melvin Kelly's A Different Drummer, which is being called This Year's Stoner. And it was released in 1962 when Kelly was uh, very, very young. Um, he was a young uh, black man and he kind of uh, inverts types as... Uh, it's kind of like white people's view of something that happens in the black community in America in 1962. I can't imagine what it was like reading it in 1962 because I'm reading it now and it seems so fresh and so uh, exciting. Um, it's, a it's a lot different to Stoner. It's being called this year's Stoner in terms of like, this is an old book that has been republished and is really, really good. So I think that that's it. Other books that I've enjoyed, I mentioned I've read a couple of Rachel Kushner books uh, this year. I also read a couple of Willie Lawton's books as well. He released a new book this year. And so I was like, well, I've heard this name a lot. I know a couple of people who really, really like him. So uh, I'll go back and read him. And I think he's great. You probably can call him a great American novelist, but he's he's like a great American chronicler, kind of talking about the, the people who have been trodden down in life. So uh, I, th I think that that's a really, really good book. What about you? What have been some other highlights of the year reading wise for you? Well, I really, I haven't read any of those. So I'm just scribbling these down furiously. Um, I I really loved the new uh, Donald Ryan from A Low and Quiet Sea. That was just on the out, uh, outside of my top 10 list, but I, I really enjoyed it, especially the, the, the first section that's all set from the point of view of a, a Syrian doctor who gets on a boat to Europe with his family. I just find that incredibly harrowing and I, I just loved it. Um, I also read some books that have been on my list for ages that didn't necessarily come out this year. So I read, finally got around to reading Tin Man by Sarah Winman. Um, and I also read Commonwealth by Anne Patchett, um, both of which, you know, had got lots of hype when they came out either last year or the year before. Um, and I finally sat down to read them both. And I just thought they were amazing, really, really special books. Um, so uh, they were they were high on my list also, but I didn't include them given they didn't actually come out in 2018 so I was being very well behaved and, and sticking to the rules. <laughs> and uh, what are you looking forward to in 2019? Well I think we mentioned um, obviously Sinead Gleason's collection of essays constellations I think that is going to be really exciting and as I said it's so lovely to see her getting so much kind of attention and 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 love because as I said she's been giving attention and love to other authors for so long that you know it's it's great that um she's she's going to be in the spotlight now um and also we both mentioned uh kevin barry at various points partially in in relation to to danny denton but um also yeah he has a new novel my boat to tangier which is coming out um which i can't wait for because i just think he is one of the greatest writers ever really um to not to be too over dramatic about it but i i really do think that um so i'm delighted um that he has a novel coming out soon. Um, also, Max Porter, who wrote Grief is the Thing with Feathers, um, which is finally coming to the stage um, in London because I know that the, the, the stage adaptation premiered in Galway and then was in Dublin, um, but I couldn't make it back for either of those. So it's finally in the new year coming over to... Um, to the UK, they had to wait for Killian Murphy to film the next series of Peaky Blinders before they could do it. So I can't wait for that. But yeah, he has a new novel called Lammy coming out um, next year, um, which everyone is already kind of raving about. Um, and actually, interestingly, uh, Max Porter um, was an editor at Granta for many years. And I believe he was the editor actually on 
Danny Denton's the early king and the kid in yellow. Uh, anyway, he has actually just stepped down because he's going to focus on his writing full time. Um, so, yes, I can't wait to um, to get my hands on Lammy and see what he comes up with next because Grief of the Thing with Feathers was, was a pretty special little book. And what about you, Ruth? Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're writing a book at the moment. Are you almost finished? Are we going to expect to see that in 2019? No, luckily that is, I mean, it is almost finished, as in it's finished, um, but I now have to go back and do editorial stuff. Um, but I, the, it's looking like publication is going to be early 2020. Um, so, which is quite nice because it means I don't really have to think about it being, oh my God, next year. Um, even though, you know, there, it could be as early as January 2020. So actually it'll be just, just around the corner. Um, but yes, so I, I'm staying calm next year and just thinking about other people's books and um, and editing and and teaching and and reading um so yes 2020 is the next one for me but we're, we're not going to think about that yet because i'll you know start losing sleep and it's too soon to do that so so i can just pencil that in for this time next year what are you looking for yeah, we'll <laughs> by that point i won't be sleeping because i'll be so nervous because it'll be just around the corner but hopefully i've got a year of sleep left again <laughs> Cool. Uh, yeah, thanks a million for doing this. I really enjoyed it. No, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, and uh, sorry for, for going on quite so long. But as I said, book, books and lists are my favourite thing. So I could I could have kept going all day. 